Hey everyone, Jeremy here. Welcome back to the Towards Data Science Podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode because we're going to be taking on a lot of long-termist, sort of forward-looking and semi-futuristic topics related to AI and the way AI technology is going to shape the future of governance. Are human beings going to just become economically irrelevant? How many of our day-to-day decisions are going to be offloaded to machines? And maybe most importantly, what does the emergence of highly capable and highly general AI systems mean for the future of democracy and governance itself? Those questions are impossible to answer with any kind of certainty, but it might be possible to get some hints by taking a long view at the history of human technological development, and that's exactly the strategy that my guest, Ben Garfinkel, is applying in his research on the future of AI. Now, Ben is a multidisciplinary researcher who's working on forecasting risks from advanced technologies, including AI, at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. Ben's also spent a lot of time exploring some classical arguments for AI risk, many of which you'll have encountered on the podcast. We've had a lot of of guests on to discuss and explore those in detail, and uh, and many of which he disagrees with. And we'll be exploring his disagreements, why he has them, and, and where he thinks the arguments for AI risk are a little bit shaky. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. Ben, thanks so much for joining me for the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to have you here. Your focus is on a whole bunch of long-termist issues, a lot of them around AI. Um, before we dive into the meat and potatoes of that, though, I'd love to have a better understanding of what brought you to this space. So what was your background coming in, and how did you discover long-termism and, uh, and AI? Yeah, so it's, it's actually, um, I guess, fairly, fairly roundabout. So in college, I studied uh, physics and philosophy, and was quite interested in actually the the philosophy of physics, and was even considering going into grad school for that, which fortunately I did I did not do. Um, and yeah, I guess through philosophy, I I started to learn more about ethics and encountered certain ideas around population ethics, and the idea that um, you know there's different questions around how we should value future generations in the decisions we make, and what our obligations are to to future generations or um, how strong the obligation is to do something that has at least you know, some use to, to other people. And then, yeah, through that, I sort of became increasingly interested in, um, I guess, long-termism and also trying to, to figure out something that seemed useful. Um, and I sort of came to think that maybe philosophy of physics was not that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I got actually very lucky. And that's just as around this time, as I was starting to look more into sort of long-termist or futurist topics, I happened to meet a professor, Alan Defoe, who was at Yale at the time, who was just himself pivoting to work on um, AI governance issues. And he, I think he put out a call for research, research assistance when I was still a senior there. And I was interested in the topic. I'd read a little bit about AI risk. So I'd read, for example, the book, Superintelligence, and you know, I hadn't really engaged in the area, but it seemed like there may be some important issues there. And you know, an opportunity jumped up and I started working with Alan. And, you know, now it's several years later, I'm actually still working with Alan. And um, I've just become, I guess, fairly convinced that uh, working on risks from emerging technology is um, at least a pretty good thing to, to do from a, a long-term perspective. Well, and this is actually a, a beautiful segue into, I think, one of the, the main topics I really wanted to talk about. And, and that is this idea that you, know, you spent a lot of time thinking about uh, existential risk from AI and the arguments for it, many of which I know that you, you're not actually fully sold on. Um, maybe we can start there. What's the nature of the existential risk that people generally, in, in particular, Alan and you, uh, are worried about when it comes to AI? And then uh, what we can maybe get into the counter arguments to those arguments as well. But uh, just for starters, yeah, what is, what is that risk? Yeah, so I think it's actually, um, I don't think that there's really a single risk that um, at least really predominates um, in the in the community of people thinking about the long-term impacts of AI. So I'd say that there's there's a few 
main very broad and somewhat nebulous categories. Um, so one class of risks uh, very quickly is, I guess risks I'd say are risks from instability. So a lot of people, especially in the international security domain are worried about, um, for example, lethal autonomous weapon systems, maybe increasing the risk of, of um, you know, conflict between states, maybe accidental you know, flash conflicts or potentially uh, certain applications of AI, let's say, um, you know, um, removing sort of second strike capabilities and sort of increasing the risk of nuclear war or they're worried about great power competition. And the sort of main vector of concern they have is, you know, maybe something about AI will destabilize politics either domestically or internationally. And then maybe there'll be war, which will have lasting damage or just some other, you know, negative long run conflict. There's another class of concerns that um, is um, less focused on there being, let's say, some specific conflict or you know, collapse or um, or war, and is more focused on the idea that maybe um, there's some level of of possible contingency in how AI reshapes society. Um, and so, uh, you might think that certain decisions people make about how to govern AI will have lasting effects that carry forward and affect future generations. Um, and affect, for for example, things like how prevalent democracy is, um, or what the distribution of power is, or um, just you know, various other things that people care about that maybe, for example, bad values would be in some sense entrenched. Um, and what are some of the, because on, on that side, I imagine that's a very obviously it's a complicated area, but what are some of the ways in which people imagine um, AI transforming the, 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 the extent to which, let's say, democracy is a tractable mode of governance in the future? Yeah, so just that on democracy, um, so there's obviously, you know, some kind of you know, speculative edge to this, but one argument for being worried about democracy is that democracy is not really normal. Um, if you look, you know, across broad sweep of human history back to the first civilizations, um, you know, it's not that uncommon for there to be, um, let's say, um, um, very like weakly democratic elements. So it's not completely an autocracy. There's some sort of body, you know, so let's say, uh, say, you know, Roman Senate or something like that in the case yeah. of Rome, which is a sort of well-known one, but it's very far from, um, um, what we have right now, which is like almost universal suffrage in a large number of countries uh, with like very responsive governments and sort of consistent transfer of power. Um, that's like extremely rare from a historicalist perspective. And even if things are that are not full autocracy or somewhat common before, you know, this is a very different thing the past couple hundred years. And there's different theories about why uh, this sort of um, modern form of democracy has become more common. And there's a lot of debate about this because it's, you know, hard to run, you know, RCTs. Uh, but a lot of people do point to at least certain economic changes that happen around the industrial revolution as relevant. Um, so one class of change that people sometimes bring up is that um, you know land reform was a really serious concern uh, before the industrial revolution. Some of the concern was that if you you know give a lot of common people power over the government or leverage, then they'll choose to just redistribute land, which is the primary form of wealth um, from you know wealthy actors more broadly, should be very disruptive. And that um, as countries industrialized and land became less relevant as a form of wealth, um, maybe these like land reform concerns became less of a blocker. You no longer had this sort of landed aristocracy that um, had this, you know, uh, very blunt, you know, policy fear. Another concern as well is that the value of labor went up as well, um, just as you know, productivity increased. And this maybe people gave people in some nebulous sense more bargaining power because uh, you know, the typical worker just. Uh, what they did and more value and they could you know create a larger threat by by threatening to basically um just you know re remove their labor um or urbanization is also thought to maybe have been relevant like maybe people being packed in the cities made it easier to organize and actually have successful revolutions and there's a lot of different factors that people basically point to as being economic changes that um maybe helped democracy along its way or helps at least partly explain why it's more prevalent today and so one concern you could have quite broadly is 
if the prevalence of democracy is in some way contingent on certain um, material or economic factors, then that have only really you know held for like the past couple hundred years. Uh, maybe this isn't normal. Maybe if you just change a lot of economic and technological variables, that's you know it's not going to hold. And there's you know some more specific arguments here. So one pretty specific argument is just um, if the value of human labor goes very low or even goes to zero in most cases, because you can just substitute capital for labor because AI systems can do anything that people can do. Uh, that maybe removes the power of workers if you can automate law enforcement um, or you know the you know putting down of uprisings because you know uh, military technologies can be automated as well. Um, maybe that makes authoritarian governments more stable. It means that they, they don't need to make concessions out of fear of uprisings. And maybe as well, if the value of labor goes to zero, then wealth at that point might, be might become very heavily based on just, you know, who owns capital or, um, you know, who owns, you know, machines, basically. And maybe it creates a system, a situation that's very analogous to the old concerns about land reform, where wealth wasn't really based on these more, you know, nebulous uh, things with the value of people's labor, what didn't really play a role. It's just largely, there's a thing that you own that you basically collect rents on. Um, if we return to that system, then, um, you know, maybe that's also not good for, for the stability of democracy as well. Um, so it's kind of a, an outside view perspective, which is just, this is a rare thing. Maybe we shouldn't expect it to last, we change a lot. And then there's some sort of more inside view arguments that, um, um, you know, maybe we'll make authoritarian governments more stable and make people more worried about giving power to non-elites. It's really interesting how, um, how, how entangled all these issues are and how difficult it is to articulate a, a coherent vision of what the future might look like when all these transformational changes happen. One of the things that keeps coming to mind for me when, you know, when we start talking about what's going to happen with democracy, what's going to happen with economies, and then the power of labor to negotiate and so on, is like the, the underlying assumption that we have any kind of market structure whatsoever. I mean, to the extent that you have all labor being done by machines, one of the, I guess, almost silly questions that that I would have is like what what is the value of money in that context what is the value of price discovery uh, mm -hmm. how does price discovery happen in that context and what even does redistribution mean if I mean it's not that we're necessarily in a post-scarcity situation you would expect gradients of, of scarcity but anyway I'm, I'm not even sure what thought I'm trying to articulate here but it looks like you have something yeah. to throw in there so yeah so I think I think this is a really you know serious issue is I think we should not expect ourselves to actually be able to imagine um, a future with very advanced AI in any level of detail and actually be right. Um, so an analogy I've, I've sometimes used is I think there's certain aspects of a world where AI systems can at least do all the things that people can do. They can sort of reason about to some extent abstractly. Like we do have, um, you know, these economic models, we have labor and you have capital and you can you know, ask about what happens if you can substitute capital for labor. Um, and, um, you can you know, sort of approach at this very abstract you know, point of view. And there's maybe some reason to hope that these theories are sufficiently abstract that even if we don't know the details, you know, there's still some reason to think that they're sufficiently general abstract that we can still use them to reason about the future. Um, but there is definitely a concern, like anything that becomes you know, kind of specific of you know, how the governments work, we're probably gonna be imagining just the functionality of governments quite wrong. Um, so one analogy I've sometimes used is let's imagine that um, you know, you're in let's say 1500 and someone kind of describes the internet to you in like very abstract terms of it's like communication will be much faster, retrieving information and learning things will be much quicker. Um, and it gives you some of the abstract properties of it. There's some stuff you can probably, probably reason about. So you, you might think, for example, um, 
oh, you can probably have like, you know, uh, diplomats or less autonomy because, you know, uh, people in government can, can communicate with them more quickly as opposed to them being overseas and out of contact. Or businesses can probably be larger because these, these coordination costs will probably go down. And some stuff you can probably say about it that would actually be, um, you know, be true. Or you could say, oh, maybe people work remotely, you know, and you probably yeah. don't need to know a lot, a lot about the details. But if you try to get really specific about, you know, what's going on with it, um, you're probably going to be imagining it just completely, completely wrong because you have no familiarity whatsoever of what a computer actually is like or what how people interact with them. You know, you're not going to get, you know, details at the level of like, there will be this thing called Reddit and, you know, GameStop stock. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's all these issues, which there's no chance you're ever going to foresee in any level of detail. Um, and there's lots of issues you might imagine that just won't really apply because you're using abstractions that somehow don't fit very well. Um, and so this is a bit of a long-winded way of saying, I do, I do think we have some theories and, and methods of reasoning that are sufficiently abstract that I expect them to, to hold at least a little bit. Uh, but I think there's lots of stuff that we just can't foresee, lots of issues that we just can't really talk about, and lots of stuff we say today that will probably end up being silly um, from the perspective of the future. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, you know, this time it's going to be different is a dangerous thing to say at any given time. But when it comes to the, the next stage of the sort of the AI uh, revolution, if you want to call it that, I know that's the language you've tended to use as well, and it, it mm -hmm. seems apt in this case. Um, one of the things that, that I do wonder about is a kind of almost like abstraction leakage where like mm -hmm. the abstractions that we rely on to define things like markets, um, this the, the sort of one of the very fundamental elements of our, our reasoning when we're talking mm -hmm. about predicting the future, um, markets implicitly revolve around people um, because ultimately prices are just what individual human beings are willing to pay for a thing. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that we broaden our definition of like what a market participant could be. And here we get into questions of like, how do we consider an AI agent mm -hmm. that like, at what point is it a participatory member of society? And at what point does price discovery really revolve mm -hmm. around the needs and wants of non-human systems and things like that? I guess that's where I kind of start to wonder, like, uh, this is a non-constructive perspective by default. So it's not helpful yeah. for me to say like markets yeah. are, are a bad abstraction, but um, like, is that an issue that you, you think is, is serious or? Uh... Yeah, so certainly, yeah, so I do certainly think that there's an issue that I think you point out like a good specific problem of we have this very firm distinction between just people are very different than, you know, machines and software at the moment. Like it's it's a very firm and capital, and, you know, like economic actors versus just like stuff that the economic actors own. And there's, you know, some degree of blurring of like a corporation, you know, for certain purposes, you know, has traits which are in some ways kind of similar to a person. Um, but, you know, the distinction is fairly, fairly strong. Um, or even just, you know, the between capital and labor, it's like, it's, this is not really, there aren't really ambiguities around this at the moment. Um, but if you think that, you know, like very broadly capable, agential, you know, AI systems will, you know, exist in the future. Um, we think that maybe people have interesting relationships with AI systems where they create AI systems which are meant to sort of pursue their values. Um, I think a lot of distinctions that we draw might actually become a lot more ambiguous than they are today. And the way in which they become ambiguous in the future might make it so that, you know, any reason we do that relies on really crisp distinctions um, might just sort of fail in ways which are difficult to, to foresee at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of risk to predict because it's like, I mean, it really is unpredictable and, and fundamentally challenging. It seems like one of the issues there too, and you explore this in some of your work actually on the history of technology, is like which metric you're even going to look at to tell the story of the evolution mm -hmm. of this technology. Um, can you speak a little bit to that, like your historical outlook and which metrics you find interesting and, and why they may or may not be relevant in the future? Yeah, so I think one metric that I think people very uh, frequently reach to is um, 
like uh, like global world product or GDP. Um, and GDP is is um, it's sort of interesting as a metric because you know the thing it's meant to measure is basically uh, to some extent productive capacity, like how much stuff can you produce um, or like stuff that people value um, can you produce? And it's sorry, really, you know, yeah, I have sorry. a stupid question here. Sorry, what, yeah. so what is GDP? What is, what is the actual definition of GDP? Um, so at least nominal GDP, you add up um, the uh, total price of all of what are called like final products that um, are sold within an economy. And so a final product is basically something that um, in some sense, kind of like an end to itself. So if you sell someone screws and then they sell the screw to someone who uses the screw to make, you know, like a ceiling fan or something, the screw isn't meant to be counted because you're sort of double counting. If someone buys the ceiling fan and they buy the screw, when they buy the ceiling fan, they're also sort of like buying the screw as well. Mm-hmm. So it's meant to be um, basically adding up the uh, total sort of like essentially sale price of all the stuff that's that's um, like bought or sold within an economy, um, excluding the sort of intermediate products. Um, but then people also often want to talk about um, real GDP, which is different than nominal GDP. So nominal GDP is just you add up basically all the prices. Um, and one issue with nominal GDP is if you have inflation, then you can have nominal GDP increased for reasons that have nothing to do whatsoever with like the actual underlying stuff. So, if, you know, government decides to just print a ton more money um, such that, you know, um, suddenly, you know, the price of everything goes up by a factor of a thousand, but you still have the same stuff. It doesn't really feel like this is any like, you know, GDP growth has been extremely rapid in a nominal sense, but it's not really telling you that like actually you're producing more stuff. Yeah, Venezuela is doing great. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, And so real GDP, it's meant to be adjusting for this. And um, at least like roughly, very roughly speaking, the way it works is you try to um, uh, define everything relative to the prices that existed at a certain point in time in the past. So let's say you have an economy that exists, like the only product sold is, um, you know, butter. And um, the price of butter goes up by like a factor of a thousand for some reason um, because of inflation. Uh, but you only double the amount of butter that you sell in the economy. Real G- GDP would just say, oh, because the amount of butter you know you sold increased by a factor of two, um, you know the size of your economy is only increased by a factor of two, and the size of the economy is defined as take the price of butter in the past, multiply it by how many units exist today, and that's you know that's real GDP. And it gets pretty complicated because um, uh, people keep introducing new products over time. So, you know, how do you compare the real GDP of the economy in 2020 versus the economy in 1700, given that most of the stuff that people buy in 2020 didn't exist in 1700? Like, how do you actually do that comparison? And there's various wonky methods people use that I don't, that I don't really understand properly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so th- this is, in asking a question, you've also gotten to one of the main issues with GDP is it's meant to be, you know, tracking sort of the productive capacity of society, like how much stuff we make basically. Um, and if you use real GDP, um, you know, there's, there's uh, over short periods of time, it seems fairly unproblematic because you're not typically introducing that many new products. Um, but over long periods of time, it becomes increasingly nebulous, like how these comparisons actually work. Um, so very blunt comparisons still are pretty much fine. So you can still say like GDP per capita in you know, 10,000 BC versus today, even if I don't know exactly how to define GDP per capita for like hunter-gatherer societies, yeah. I'm still quite confident it was lower. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's, yeah, in some sense, like a blunt instrument. Um, I think, it, you know, its usefulness really depends on how precise you want to, to sort of make your discussions or predictions. So let's say someone makes a very bold prediction that, um, uh, you know, 
the rate of GDP per capita growth will increase by a factor of 10 due to automation. If someone makes a bold prediction like that, you know, it is a little bit ambiguous what real GDP means in some crazy futurist economy. But even if you look a little bit fuzzy on it, the difference between GDP, the rate of growth didn't change and the rate of growth increased by a factor of 10 is still blunt enough. That's, you know, it's a kind yeah. of useful way of expressing, you know, a claim. Uh, so yeah, so that's a long way, way of saying, I think GDP, uh, GDP or GDP per capita is, is often pretty good as a proxy of just um, how quickly is productive capacity increasing. Um, it's useful for like, you know, things like the industrial revolution really clearly shows up in GDP per capita or when a country is, seems really stagnant, like an undeveloped country isn't developing, GDP per capita is typically pretty flat. And then, you know, when China, for example, started to take off in a really obvious qualitative sense, GDP per capita tracks that pretty well. Um, and so it is useful for that, but it's also, yeah, has, has various issues. Um, and then there are also issues beyond that of like, often people want to use it as a proxy for how good people's lives are, like GDP per capita. Um, but there's various things that don't typically get factored into it, like, um, like the quality of medical care isn't very directly factored into it. Like air pollution mm -hmm. isn't factored into it. Um, you know, if everyone was just very depressed <laughs> or like, yeah. you know, or like anesthesia, the value of anesthesia being developed just really does not show up. There's a yeah. classic paper by William Nordhaus that shows that quality improvements in light, like the fact that light bulbs are there just way better than like candles, like, you know, more than hundred years ago, doesn't really show up. Mm. So there's, yeah. So long way of saying basically lots of issues, at least as a crude measure, pretty good. Um, but, um, doesn't necessarily like correlate that actually as well as you might hope with with well-being and other things of interest. It is interesting that when you when you tagged on that last piece, you know, it doesn't correlate well with well-being. Um, that I can't think of a better encapsulation of a kind of alignment problem. Basically, the problem yeah. of coming up with a metric that says here's what we want. Like humans are really bad, or or it's not that we're bad. It, it may just be a genuinely difficult problem to specify metrics that even make sense. And like you know, you see with the stock market. Yeah. We, we, we decide to fixate on this one metric. And for a while, the stock market was a great measure of, you know, in general, how is, how is the economy doing? How's the average person doing? But yeah. then there's a decoupling and uh, we end up with very divergent stock markets versus the lives of the average person. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, it didn't mean to butt in, but you were oh, mentioning no, the point. metrics too. Yeah, so I should just say as a, as a little caveat, um, I think at the moment GDP actually is pretty good as a metric where if you often define other things you care about like life expectancy or like life satisfaction it does actually currently um there's often like a pretty strong correlation and i think if you just like didn't know anything you know you're behind a veil of ignorance or something you need to pick a country to live in and the only thing you get is the gdp per capita this is often going to be like useful information for you yeah um i guess my thought is more that you know in, in line with the, the, the alignment concerns i wouldn't be surprised if it becomes more decoupled in the future so especially if let's say, imagine, you know, we eventually just totally replace labor with, you know, capital and machines and just, you know, people no longer are really working for wages and economic growth is mostly like machines building other machines and workers aren't really involved. I would not be shocked if, you know, the economy increases by a factor of 10, but people, the average person's life does not, you know, does not increase by yeah. a factor of 10. Yeah, that's, that's interesting as well. And, and raises the question of like, what, I mean, this is back to price discovery, which is a big mm -hmm. aspect of, of GDP. I mean, there, there are so many areas where, where things get complicated, but what's also interesting is looking at some of the, the work that you put together on this sort of historical um, exploration of, of technology is like a lot of these metrics really are correlated. I mean, it seems like it almost, to some degree, it just doesn't matter what you're measuring. Something dramatic has happened over the last, you know, well, 2000 years, over the last mm -hmm. uh, 20,000 years, however you want to measure it, agricultural revolution, Neolithic revolution, mm -hmm. um, industrial revolution. And it, it, it's almost as if, the, the human superorganism, all the, the human beings on planet mm -hmm. Earth 
are an optimization algorithm that's just latched onto some kind of optimum or local optimum or whatever. And we're now climbing that gradient really steeply. Um, do you see AI as just sort of like a, a continuum limit of that? Is, is that just like the natural next step? Or should we think of it as a, a, a sort of um, a quantum leap, like a step function? Things are just qualitatively different. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I do think, um... I do think that this is this is sort of um, a debate that exists in terms of how to exactly to interpret the history of you know economic growth or increased um, you know social capacity or you know whatever kind of nebulous term you want to use to describe people's ability to sort of make stuff or you know change stuff or get stuff done in the world. Um, and this is there's actually a, a debate that um, exists, for example, between um, different interpretations of the industrial revolution so one interpretation of the industrial revolution uh, which you know occurred between you know roughly 1750 and 1850 in in the uk and some surrounding countries um is that you know up until the industrial revolution growth was very stagnant um and then there was some sort of you know change some sort of interesting pivot that happened that maybe took place over um maybe also another you know century on the other end of the industrial revolution where for some reason the you know pace of technological progress went up and you know, people switched to you know away from an agriculturally based economy to industrial economy, and people started using non-organic sources of energy. So it's no longer you know like you know wood and animal fertilizer. It's now you know fossil fuels and you know and you know you know energy transmitted by electricity and stuff like this. And you know R and D is now playing a role in economic growth, whereas previously it didn't really. And that there's some sort of interesting phase transition or something that happened over a couple of years. We just kind of transitioned from one sort of economy to just a, sort of a almost like a qualitatively, qualitatively different sort of economy that could just sort of grow and change faster. Um, there's another interpretation though, that basically says um, um, that there's actually this sort of long run trend across at least the history of human civilization of the rate of growth getting faster and faster. Um, and this sort of interpretation says that just, you know, as the overall scale of the economy, um, you know, increases that for that reason, the growth rate itself just sort of keeps going up and up. And, um, just sort of this, this interesting feedback loop where the scale of the economy kept getting bigger and so the growth rate kept getting larger and larger and sort of really visibly exploded in the industrial revolution um, just because this is where the pace sort of finally became, you know, fast enough for people to notice this, but that there is actually like a pretty consistent, you know, like trend. It wasn't really a phase transition. Um, and there's some interesting work by, uh, for example, David Rudman, who's um, an economist um, who uh, does work for the Open Philanthropy Project. There's a recent report he wrote called, I think, Modeling the Human Trajectory, which sort of argues or sort of explores the sort of continuous perspective. And there's um, just a debate in economic history as well. So there's uh, except an economist, Michael Kramer, who sort of has argued for this kind of smooth acceleration kind of perspective. And lots of economic historians who have argued, no, actually, you know, there's some weird thing where you switch from one sort of economy to another. Um, but yeah, this, this is basically all to say that, um, yeah, people, there's like competing interpretations. So one just says, Every once in a while, it's, it's a bit weird. It's a bit idiosyncratic. Just something happens, just some change. It's a bit discontinuous and you switch to a new sort of economy that can grow faster. And another interpretation says, no, actually this is a pretty consistent force. Just things keep getting faster and faster. And it's not, you know, phase transitions and it's not discontinuities. It's just, there's a smooth, really long run trend of just the world keeps getting, you know, accelerating more and more. It's interesting how that entangles two different, almost like two different subproblems. Like one of them is, you know, do, do humans learn almost continuously? Um, in other words, like, is it the case that, um, you know, cave people were gradually generation on generation actually picking up more and more skills as they went that only be become obvious when you look mm -hmm. over like 10,000 years, 
Uh, or is it the case that no, they're basically stagnant, you know, everything is truly flat and then you get some sort of takeoff from, I mean, like, it, it almost feels like this is, this could be viewed as part of an even deeper question where if you keep zooming out and keep zooming out, it no longer becomes a story of humanity iterating towards some sort of future economy mm -hmm. with AIs taking over, but rather moving from completely abiotic matter and like the big bang, like purely mm -hmm. like no value creation whatsoever. Yeah. To, I mean, I guess that has to be a step function, right? That first moment where life evolves. Like yeah. this, is, this is where I'm, I'm curious about but that perspective would seem to argue for more of the quantum leap angle or the, the sort of step function approach, um, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's, that's right. Um, like definitely, at least intuitively, there's certain transitions um, in history where it really seems like just something different sort of happening. So the first sort of self-replicating thing that could qualify as a life form, it seems like that has to be like a fairly discrete, discrete boundary in some sense. Um, or, you know, things like, I really do not know evolutionary history, but I think the you know first eukaryotes, so they got like mitochondria, uh, you know, became part of the cell. This is a fairly you know discrete event, um, I believe, um, uh, where one organism sort of swallowed another, and then it somehow stayed alive in it, and was you know the whole eukaryotic branch of, of life um, sort of followed from that. Um, and interesting, you know, various interesting things like people <laughs> eventually followed from that, where that also seems like something that intuitively is a sort of discontinuous change, although I don't, I don't, you know, exactly. No, so um, yeah, so it, it does seem like intuitively there are certain things, and then I mean another one as well is um, um, even the, the Neolithic Revolution. So people are starting to do um, you know agriculture in a big way. Um, I think you know I think the general thinking is that this was actually like fairly rapid in a historical sense. So like or you know things that could qualify as humans have existed for tens of thousands of years, and then maybe over the course of like a few thousand years, uh, people in like Western Asia and then later other continents transitioned to sort of sedentary agricultural civilizations. And I think the thought is, you know, you had um, like a massive ice age and then uh, for like a hundred thousand years roughly, and then the ice age ended and the climate changed um, and it became in some ways more favorable um, for people sort of actually transitioning to sedentary agriculture. And then it just happened very, fairly quickly. Um, so yeah, so this is all to say, I do think that you're right that there are some historical cases where it really does feel like at least without me personally knowing a lot about them, it feels like a discontinuous change. And, you know, I do, I do also think that will probably be the case to some extent for AI. Like, I don't think it's going to be a, you wake up tomorrow thing, but I do think that um, if we eventually reach for automation or if the growth rate again increases due to AI, that, um, you know, people probably won't look at um, it just as like a stable continuation of like economic trends that have existed since like, you know, 1950, that, you know, right now we have this very steady rate of economic growth and we have this pretty steady feeling rate of automation and if the growth rate ever goes nuts, I think that people will feel like there was some sort of inflection point or pivot point or, or some tipping point involved there. Well, and that's actually as, as good a transition point as any that I could imagine uh, to the, the second area you've been looking at that I really want to discuss, which is your views on AI safety, not AI safety necessarily, like, mm -hmm. let's say AI risk and this idea of a smooth transition to an AI powered world, or let's say a very abrupt transition to a kind of uh, dystopic or or existentially um, deadly scenario. Uh, you, you so you have some views on this. Maybe I'm just going to kick things off with that. So you, can you lay out what your what your thoughts are on um, like where you think the the AI risk argument is strong and maybe where it where it fails? Yeah. So I think I might just initially say a little bit about the continuity question. Where I think yeah. Um, yeah. So just just or at least the relevance of the continuity question. Um, so yeah, as, as you alluded to, this is this is also a debate people have about AI is um, how abrupt will the, you know, let's say, assume we eventually get to the world where AI systems can basically make, you know, human labor obsolete and do 
all sorts of other crazy things. You know, how abrupt a transition uh, will that be? Will it be the sort of thing like an analogy to the Industrial Revolution where it's just, you know, it's a period of many decades and it's this gradual thing and it spreads across the world in a gradual way. And then, you know, it's like, uh, I think even things like, you know, steam power, like people transitioning to not using fossil fuels to using them, that was an extremely long transition. Um, will it be more like those cases or will it be something that feels a lot more abrupt? Like, will there, for example, be, you know, a sort of like, could you, for example, point like a two-year period where we went from stuff being basically normal to, you know, now everything is AI um, or even, you know, less than two years. And this is a debate that, that sometimes happened in the sort of long-termist or sort of, uh, you know, I guess like futurist community. And it seems relevant in some ways where um, uh, one of, and, and in some ways can potentially be something that increases risk or um, potentially reduces it. So in terms of increasing risk, one thing that a sudden or like really rapid change implies is it can come a little bit out of nowhere. So it's very continuous, you know, you kind of see a lot of stuff that's happening coming well ahead of time. Um, whereas if it's really sudden, then that means then, you know, if it's a process that would take two years, and that means that in principle, two years from now, we could be living in a very different world if it just happens to happen soon. Um, and there's less time to sort of get prepared and less time to get used to different intermediate levels of, of difference and do trial and error learning and get a sense of what the risks are, what the risks aren't. If stuff is sudden, just there's less opportunity to see ahead of time and get used to the problems and come up with intermediate solutions. and learn from your mistakes. Um, and so, yeah, so this, and I think the, the largest risk that this is probably relevant to are risks um, related to um, misaligned AI, um, which is, I guess, the last major category of risk. Um, and these are also a little bit um, um, diverse. And I believe you've, you've had some previous people on the podcast, uh, you know, talk about them. Um, but a lot of the concerns is basically boiled down to, um, you know, lots of AI systems we develop in the future will probably, to some extent, act, behave as though they're pursuing certain objectives or trying to maximize certain things about the world. Um, you know, in the sense that a Go plane system is trying to, to win at Go and a system that, um, you know, um, um, you know uh, makes predictions about you know, re-offense rates and re-offense rates in a criminal justice perspective is kind of, in a sense, trying to, you know, increase predictive accuracy or that sort of thing. And um, the concern is that the goals that AI systems have will in some sense diverge in an important way from the goals that people um, tend to have and that this will lead to you know, a disastrous outcome. We have AI systems which are quite clever um, and quite good at getting, you know, achieving whatever goals they have, just doing things that you know, differ from what people want. And yeah, so speed is really relevant to this because um, if you think that there's, this is gonna be this pervasive issue of someone creates an AI system and deploys it, and then there's some sort of subtle divergence between its goal and the people, goals that people have and this causes harm. It seems like if there's a really continuous transition to AI systems doing, you know, playing larger and larger roles in the world, that there's probably, you know, quite a lot of time to notice kind of less catastrophic versions of this concern or learn what works or doesn't work. Um, you know, not everyone is fully convinced that just gradualness and trial and error is enough to completely resolve the issue, but it seems like surely it's, it's you know, it's helpful to actually be able to see more minor versions of the concern and come up with solutions that work in minor cases. Whereas if stuff is very sudden, then, and, you know, let's say we wake up tomorrow and we have AI systems that um, in principle can just completely replace human labor, could run governments, could do whatever. Um, if we, for whatever reason, decide to use them um, and they had goals which are different than ours in some important way, then this is probably a lot more concerning and we might not see, see issues coming. Um, yeah, so I think, um, so I guess, can you me, is your, your question, you know, what are the... Um, so, you know, what are the reasons why this might not be a major concern or just what's the set of arguments for it being a concern one way or the other? Well, actually, um, I think there's an even more specific 
kind of concern that you've sort of taken a lot of time to unpack, and it's mm -hmm. this concern around super intelligence, the argument that Nick Bostrom makes in his mm -hmm. book, Super Intelligence, just to kind of, to briefly summarize, to tee it up here, the idea mm -hmm. is, and I'm going to butcher this, and please feel free to highlight the various ways in which I butcher this, but the idea is something like, um, if we assume that AI teams, let's say at OpenAI and DeepMind and, mm -hmm. and wherever else, are gradually iterating and iterating and iterating, one day one of them has an insight or purchases a whole bunch of compute mm -hmm. or gets access to a whole bunch of data that's just the one thing that's needed to bump a system from mm -hmm. like pathetic little GPT-3 to yeah. like now all of a sudden human level or above, that system may be, because it's human level or above, it may know how to improve itself because humans mm -hmm. know how to improve AI systems. So maybe it figures out how to improve itself and you get some like recursive loop because the loop's very tight. The, mm -hmm. the AI can improve itself, improve itself. And eventually it's so smart that it can overpower, let's say its captors with its intelligence and take over the world and, uh, and lead to completely disastrous outcome. Is that at least roughly right? Yeah, so I think that, I think that's, that is basically roughly right. Um, yeah, so I think, I think there's basically, one way to sort of think about it is I think there's sort of a spectrum of these sort of alignment concerns. And some of them are in the more maybe sort of diffuse or nebulous you know, perspective where we create lots of A systems gradually over time and their goals diverge from ours and there's sort of a gradual like loss of control of the future and, and, and that sort of thing. And then there's so much of a much more extreme where it's like there's a single AI system um, and it arrives quite suddenly um, and it's, you know, in some sense, you know, broadly super intelligent and it doesn't really have major precedents. And then that system sort of individually quite rapidly causes, you know, havoc in the world. Like there's some major jump to this one single, you know, very destructive system, uh, which is uh, definitely the version of the concern that's emphasized in things like, um, you know, Nick's book, Super Intelligence, and then the, the sort of narrative, I guess you just described. And yeah, so a lot of my, um, I guess, own thinking about AI risk has been um, a lot about this sort of more extreme end of the spectrum, sort of style concern that appears in, in places like super intelligence uh, for a couple of reasons. The one is just, um, I think it's, it, it's, it's the version of it I first encountered and that sort of made me especially interested in it, which I guess, you know, is, is a partial just personal reason for interest. And another is I think that this is just, um, you know, even if lots of um, AI alignment researchers don't primarily have this version of the concern in mind, I think it's still quite influential and pretty well known. And it's often, if someone knows anything about AI risk, this is the version of the concern that, that comes to mind. And so in that sense, I think it's it's maybe especially worth paying attention to. And and yeah, so some of my thinking has been um, just about the question of like, is it plausible that you actually have this very sudden jump from, you know, you don't really have major AI systems of interest, the world is a bit like it is today. And then suddenly some researcher somewhere has this major breakthrough and you end up with this, you know, this single system. And I guess I'm fairly skeptical of this for, for maybe sort of boring reasons. Um, so one um, initial boring reason is just, you know, that's not, that's not the way like technology tends to work. Like if you look at any sort of, you know, if you sort of start from the perspective of like, let's look at how technology normally transforms the world. Um, it's normally the case that um, it's this protracted process that takes decades where someone develops something and then, you know, there's a long process of improvement and then it's deployed in some sectors before other sectors and it's useful in some areas before other areas. And then people need to develop complementary you know, inventions to take advantage of it. And people need to sort of figure out how to actually use it appropriately. And there's lots of annoying tweaking and issues they don't foresee that, that make it a slow process. You know, so like electricity, it's, I think the electric motor, um, uh, sometime in the early 19th century, I believe it's invented, but then electric motors, you know, don't predominate in like American factories until, you know, something like the 1930s um, or the, you know, the first digital computers, you know, middle of the 20th century, but it's not until like the 90s that they really show up in productivity statistics in a big way. Um, and even then, you know, not really, and still, you know, loads of countries not like that pervasively used in different important contexts. Um, and, um, you know, not even that in, in a sense, like that larger portion of the economy. And so if you kind of just start from there, it's like, 
you know, don't look too specifically at the details of AI and say like, what would I expect if it's like, you know, any other technology we've ever had? Um, it's probably it's economic transformation. It's going to be a gradual thing. Lots of annoying stuff that happens. And do you think, so just to, to kind of probe with that a little bit. Yeah. So one of the things that I would imagine has made the, uh, the progress and distribution of technology accelerate in the last like hundred years mm -hmm. or whatever period we choose is precisely communication. We talked about that quite mm -hmm. a few times, the role the internet played and so on. Um, and communication in particular in terms of tightening feedback loops between the teams of people who design product, the teams of people who mm -hmm. deploy it, the teams of people who sell it and so on. Um, to the extent that that integration, that coherence is driven by communication, would that undermine this, uh, this argument in the sense of saying, well, if you have a single AI system mm -hmm. that's internally coherent mm -hmm. and that's able to essentially tighten that feedback loop, not infinitely, but mm -hmm. like uh, to, to machine time, um, does that, do you find that, that position interesting, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Um, so I guess I find it, so, I guess I find it interesting, but not persuasive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so let's say, so I think, so let's say there's, you know, the idea of like, if we imagine, if we jump to the, you know, imagine like that there's a sudden jump to some, you know, extremely broadly capable AI system that just can sort of do all of the economically relevant, you know, production tasks. Like it can, you know, it can do mining for chips. It can run, um, you know, ballot cooling centers. It can build, you know, it can, it can do AI research. It can, um, you know, build, you know, more compute resources. Uh, it can manage, you know, military strategic, you know, like if you imagine that there's a single system that just sort of abruptly comes into existence, that's just itself kind of doing all of this without interacting with outside actors or pulling on external resources. Um, then it does seem like there's some intuition of like stuff can happen faster because just the communication efficiency costs have just gone down, gone down a lot. Uh, but there's sort of, you know, one of the questions is like, should we imagine that this is the way development will work, that there will be like one single system that just kind of abruptly gets all these capabilities. And I guess that's you know something that I'm I'm fairly skeptical of in, in the case of AI, and you know also again for like somewhat boring reasons. So we we do know that um, you can have progress in different areas at the same time. So uh, something like that, um, I imagine probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with this. You know, um, language models or like this recent system GPT three developed by OpenAI. Uh, this is an example of a system that got pretty good at lots of different tasks uh, sort of through a single training process at like sort of roughly the same time. So I was trained on a large um, corpus of uh, basically web pages um, and I was trained to basically try and predict uh, what's the least surprising next word I could encounter on the basis of the, the words I've already encountered in like a document I'm exposed to. And so you can use it to do stuff like, you know, write a headline for a news article and then we'll try and think what's the least surprising text for an article given, you know, this headline. And, you know, one thing, pe thing people find is you can actually use it to do a lot of different stuff. Um, so um, you can use it to do translation, for example, where you can write a sentence in Spanish and say the English, you know, translation of the sentence is blank, is colon, and the system will go, oh, the least surprising, you know, thing to find next would basically be like the English translation of it. You can use it to, to write, you know, poetry, like what's the least surprising ending to this like Emily Dickinson, you know, poem, um, or that sort of thing. Uh, but even in, in these cases where lots of different sort of capabilities kind of in some sense come online at once, you do still definitely see um, a, a lot of variation in terms of how good it is at different stuff. Um, so, you know, it's um, it's like pretty bad for the most part at writing like usable like computer code. Like you can do a little bit of this, but basically can't do it in a useful way at the moment. It's like pretty good at writing like, you know, Jabberwocky style poems, like one of these, you know, sort of came before the other. Um, and there's sort of reason to think that it'll continue to be the case that it's going to be like a sort of expanding, you know, thing where some capabilities come before others. And there's also some capabilities that just you kind of can't really produce just purely through this sort of GPT-3 style train it on this large corpus of, you know, online things like, 
if you want to train to write like, you know, Department of Defense internal memos, it needs to be trained on something else. If you want to write like healthcare legislation, probably this data set is not going to do it for you. Um, if you want it to like set supermarket prices, like a price inventory thing, or do personalized emails where it knows actually like when to schedule meetings for you, you're going to need like a different training method. Um, or if you want to perform better than humans, you're going to need like a different training method as well because you need to give it like what it basically does is it tries to say what would be like the least surprising thing for a person to have written on, on the internet. But if you want to do better than a person, you're going to need to use something else, some sort of feedback mechanism. So basically, there's reason to think if different capabilities will come online at different times. There'll also probably be lots of annoying stuff that comes up in different specific domains that like doesn't really show up to researchers, but tends to come up when you actually want to apply stuff. Like a lot of getting, you know, going from the electric motor to people actually using electric motors in factories was like, you need to redesign your factory floor because it's no longer based around a central steam engine. You need to redesign the things that's using the hardware. You need to redesign, you know, the processes that your, your workers use to actually like leverage this thing. You know, regulations need to happen and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and probably these things will need to be dealt with to some extent, at least initially by different teams. And some of them will be harder than others or require different resources than, than others. And um, I would basically be surprised if like, this is, you know, all again, like a long way of saying, I expect stuff to come online, like actually be like really useful in the world at, at pretty different points for different tasks. Interesting. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it, it's exactly the, it, what's interesting to me is it's exactly the kind of error that, um, that a theorist would, would make. Like, you know, imagining a system that, not that it is an error. I mean, this, this scenario could easily come to pass, but these are interesting objections that seem to map onto the psychology of somebody who's focused on, you know, theoretical optimization rather than optimization of systems and economies in practice. Um, interesting. So none of this though seems to suggest that it would not be possible at some point in the future um, for an AI system with the ability to self-improve uh, uh, iteratively and, and ad infinitum mm -hmm. uh, to be developed. So I guess the question is, there's two parts to this question. First off, do, A, do you think that that's the case? Or do you think that it, it mm -hmm. will be possible uh, to build such a system? And B, do you think such a system will be built or, or is likely to be built? Are there mm -hmm. the, is there a series of incentives that stacks up to get us to a recursively self-improving AI that mm -hmm. just goes foom eventually and, and does whatever? Uh, is that a plausible story? Yeah. So I guess it, so. I guess I have a couple of bits here. So first bit is um, it's unclear to me that recursive self improvement should will really be the thing. So so clearly there are you know feedback loops and will be feedback loops um, in the future. So you know we see this with lots of technologies in a more limited way. So um, uh, you know the existing software is useful for developing software. You know people use software developers. You know use software. Um, and uh, you know computers are useful for designing computers. If people are you know, um, NVIDIA or, you know, any, any sort of hardware manufacturer didn't have computers to, to use, they would probably find their jobs like quite a bit harder. Um, you know, um, so there's like, you know, loads of cases where uh, technology sort of aids its own development um, or like a technology ages development of further technology. It's typically not recursive where it's not typically like exactly the same artifact that's improving itself. Um, and in the case of AI, like I don't necessarily see a good reason to expect it to be recursive. Like I definitely expect AI to be applied more and more in the context of AI development. You know, searching for you know searching for the right architecture or uh, doing you know model learning, figuring out what's the most you know optimal way to to basically you know develop another system or um, you know make it work well. Um, but I I don't necessarily see a strong reason to like think that's the individual system doing it to itself, as opposed to a system that's developed to help train other systems, sort of, you know, you know, the same right. way like software 
doesn't tend to improve itself. Like I don't really see like a great benefit to it being recursive. I mean, it could be the case that that's done, but I just, I sort of don't see why it would be recursive, like why that's inherently more attractive. Um, and in some way seems like maybe less attractive. It seems like somehow a bit like messier, or like it seems like nice if this is a bit of a modular thing. Um, yeah, I guess it, it, like to some degree, just to sort of, um, uh, to bolster this argument a little bit from an engineering standpoint, mm -hmm. I would imagine that um, the, so th there's there's this abstraction of like different systems, yeah. this term that we use to say like, there's system A, there's system B, you know, system A is either improving itself or system B is improving it. Mm -hmm. And then maybe system A, all that stuff. Um, I guess what, I, what I'd be thinking of in this, in this case is like an abstraction that covers like a closed, something like a closed system yeah. that crucially operates on machine time. So like the, the, the key distinction to my mind that would mm -hmm. define like a, a, a a takeoff of this form would be the fact that this uh, either self-optimization or you know mm -hmm. system A improves system B happens like on the order of like microseconds or or what have you, such that humans do not intercede in the process mm -hmm. and are ultimately surprised by the result or the result yeah. can deviate significantly from our expectations. Yeah, so I, I think maybe one of the key distinctions is just is like labor basically involved in in the improvement mm -hmm. process, and so. One sort of general counter to like, you know, this AI feedback loop being really important to really increasing the the rate of change, you know, that much is just, um, you know, we already do have like, I guess, or so I guess we do already do have these feedback loops where, um, um, you know, loads of tasks that researchers would have been doing or engineers would have been doing at the beginning of the 20th century, they just don't do anymore. They've just been completely automated. So just actually doing calculations by hand was like a huge, you know, time sink. It was yeah. like the you know, research effort for like engineering. Um, and so there's been massive, massive automation, like in terms of the time that people spent doing like, you know, a huge portion of it's been automated away. Um, and so in that sense, there's been this really strong feedback loop um, where, you know, technological progress has helped technological progress. Um, but, you know, we haven't actually seen, um, at least since the middle of the 20th century, we haven't seen um, an increase in the, the rate of productivity growth or like technological progress, at least in like leading countries. Like it seems to have actually gotten slower, if anything. Um, and, you know, the rate now is like comparable to the beginning of the 20th century in, in the U.S. And so clearly this feedback loop isn't enough on its own. And there's, you know, an offsetting thing. And probably the main offsetting thing is like this idea is getting hard to find phenomenon where, you know, yeah, technology helps you make new stuff, but also each new thing you want to make is a bit harder to make than the previous thing. Because um, if it was easy, you would have already done it, you know. <laughs> and so um, and so that's kind of one general counter argument. And then the counter counter argument to that is like, well, you know, this whole time that we've been automating um, lots of the tasks tasks involved in research and then, you know, creating machines to do them and then improving the machines, you know, human labor has always been um, a part of it. And if you have this sort of story where um, human labor and, you know, uh, stuff done by capital basically, or like is like complementary, um, then you can have sort of a labor bottleneck story where we keep making cooler machines and we keep making more machines, um, but there's diminishing returns on like the coolness of your machines or the quantity of your machines for a fixed amount of like, you know, research effort. Um, and so research efforts are the bottleneck. It creates this diminishing returns phenomenon where, um, you know, just it really like limits the, the marginal value of the additional cool tech stuff that's involved, you know, done by researchers or, or owned by researchers. Um, and then if you, sorry, and then, you know, the number of researchers grows at this pretty constant exponential rate that can't really be changed that easily because it's linked to population and things like that. So then the story might be if you actually remove just human labor completely from the picture, just people are just not involved in, in R&D anymore or manufacturing. 
um, then maybe in that case, uh, you no longer have this diminishing returns effect. Like you no longer have this bottleneck that you get diminishing returns on capital for like a fixed amount of labor. Maybe it just feeds back directly to itself. Diminishing returns kind of go away in, in, in some important sense. And then the feedback loop really takes off once you just completely remove humans from the loop. Um, would be the, the story you could tell to, to say, you know, why the feedback loop will be different in the future than the, the, the non-explosive feedback loop we've had for the past century. And I, I guess there's also like, hmm, there, there's also, there is a feedback of like human self-improvement. I, th I think clock time is the distinguishing yeah. characteristic here, but like, you know, I can, like, I do strive to improve mm -hmm. myself and my productivity and I do strive to yeah. meta myself. Like I try to improve the way I improve myself. Yeah. And in principle, I think I do that to an infinite number of derivatives or as close yeah. to that as matters. So there is an exponential quality to it. But clearly, I mean, I'm not Elon Musk yet. I, right. I haven't achieved hard takeoff. So yeah. <laughs> there, there's a difference guess, there somehow. Yeah. So I guess the, the thing I'd say there is probably that I think you're definitely right that that's a real phenomenon. Um, I think, though, that the, the kind of orders of magnitude involved, like how much you can actually self-improve is just smaller than it is for technology. So if you imagine, you know, let's imagine a researcher unit is, it's a, it's a person in their laptop, and that's the thing that produces the research. Um, the person can definitely make themselves better at coding. They can make themselves better at learning how to do things, you know, quickly. They can learn how to learn. Um, but maybe the, the actual difference in productivity, maybe you can hope to increase by like a factor of, you know, 10 in terms of human capital relative to, you know, you know, what the average researcher in like, you know, 2020 is. Whereas your laptop, it seems like it maybe has more lungs to the rather than to climb up in terms of how much better it can get than, you know, than it is right now. That, that does unfortunately seem to be the case, but, uh, I just need to keep working at it. I think that's what yeah. it means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I wish you best of luck in your race against your laptop's rate of improvement. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'll let, I'll let you know if I hit takeoff. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so so the, the, that's really interesting that, that so you have done so much thinking on this and, and I, can, I can sort of see in myself um, some, some shifts in terms of like the, the way that you're thinking about this, certainly there are aspects of it that I hadn't considered before that do come from this economics perspective, that come from the systems perspective. Um, is this a, a way of thinking that you think is un especially uncommon among technical AI safety people? Or are you starting to see that become adopted more? Like I I'm still trying to piece together what the landscape looks like and how views have been shifting on this topic mm -hmm. over time. Because just by way of example, like, I remember um, 2009 was you know, it was Miri, Eliezer, Yudkowsky, mm -hmm. basically everybody was talking about this idea of a brain in a, in a box or some fast takeoff thing where a machine self-improves and so on. Whereas now it really does seem like between OpenAI, Paul Cristiano, and um, a lot of the work being done at uh, Future of Humanity Institute, things are sort of shifting. And I, I just, I'd love to get your perspective on that shift, that timeline and where the community now stands with respect to all these theses. Yeah, so I, I do definitely think there's been a shift in what um, the way, it, let's say, the the median person in these communities is thinking about it. It's a little bit ambiguous to me how much of it is um, a shift in terms of people who used to think one way shifting to another way of thinking versus more people entering the community with a sort of pre-existing different way of thinking. Um, I do think that there is some element of... Um, people thinking about things in like a bit more of a concrete way. Why do you think a lot of the older analysis it's very abstract. Um, it's like very much relying on sort of, um, I'm not, maybe like, it's not exactly like mathematical, it's, you know, it's like people doing abstract algebra or something, but um, it's a, definitely maybe like a more mathematical mindset. Um, um, and, 
you know, it shifted over time. And I think one reason for that, which is very justifiable, is just when people were talking about this, let's say the, you know, mid 2000s, uh, you know, machine learning wasn't really a huge thing. Um, people thought it would be more maybe like logic oriented systems um, would be, you know, what would, you know, maybe AGI would look like. And they really have like anything that sort of really looked at all AGI-ish to really sort of like use as a model to think about. And I think as um, the community's kind of, you know, machine learning sort of took off and people started to have these systems, like, you know, something like GPT-3, where obviously this is not, you know, AGI and probably AGI will be like very different than that. It's like, you know, it's like a little bit of like a, uh, you know, stepping stone in the path to AGI. It's like a little bit, you know, maybe AGI-ish or something. And I think having these concrete examples just sort of leads you to start thinking in like a slightly different way. Um, where you start to realize that like, they're actually like a little bit hard to describe in the context of maybe these abstract frameworks that you had before. So like GPT-3, like, does it have like a goal or like, you know, if you want to predict its behavior, how useful, like, I guess its goal is kind of to produce whatever next word would be like unsurprising, but it, it somehow doesn't exactly feel right to think that way. And it's not clear how useful it is for predicting its behavior. Like, it doesn't really seem like there's a risk yeah. of it, you know, doing some crazy, like, you know, killing people to prevent them from stopping it from outputting like somehow it just kind of feels like it doesn't really fit very well and so um and also just you know seeing like more concrete applications and thinking um so i think just saying that like paul krishana said for example that um to some extent being optimistic about oh i think you could actually probably do that thing with machine learning not that far in the future without major breakthroughs lends people to also think in a more continuous sense where it's not all or nothing it's like you can kind of see the stepping stones of intermediate you know transformations and so i think it's yeah i think it's seeing intermediate applications having a bit more concreteness and feeling like a little bit like more, maybe more skeptical of the abstract concepts using just because it's hard to fit them onto the thing you're seeing, or maybe some forces that I've, that I've had in the fact. Um, um, although I think, you know, to be clear, I, I do definitely think that there um, are, you know, plenty of people who think that um, the more mathematical and sort of classical way of, of approaching things is still, you know, quite quite useful or is, you know, the, maybe the predominant way they approach things. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually have heard arguments, um, not. Ar not necessarily arguments that a system like GPT-3 would become pathological mm -hmm. in the way described, um, but at least stories that can be told that sound internally consistent to describe worlds in which a system like that could go, go mm -hmm. really badly wrong. In that case, it's something like imagine GPT-10, like, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the year would have to be for that to happen. And you have the system that you know, necessarily, I mean, it is doing this like glorified autocomplete task, mm -hmm. but in order to perform that task, one thing that seems clear is that it's developing a fairly sophisticated model of the world. Mm -hmm. There's some debate over the extent to which this is memorization versus actual generalizable learning. But, mm -hmm. you know, let's, let's give GPT-3 the uh, benefit of the doubt and assume it is generalizable learning. To the extent that that's the case, the system continues to develop a more and more sophisticated model of the world, a larger and larger context window, eventually that model of the world includes the fact that GPT-3 itself exists and is part of the world. Mm -hmm. um, eventually this realization as it tries to optimize its gradients makes it realize, oh, um, I could develop direct control over my gradients mm -hmm. through some kind of wire heading is usually how it's framed in the mm -hmm. alignment community and so on. Like, I think the, there are problems, the problems that you described apply yeah. to this, this way of thinking, but it, it's sort of, it's interesting how a GPT theory really has led to this kind of concrete thinking about some of those abstract. Yeah, things. I think it's just also very useful as so. So for example, I think it's also very useful to have these concrete systems because I also think they force differences in intuition or for, force you know differences in kind of background assumptions to the surface. So mm -hmm. just as one example, is like um, I, it is definitely the case that some people have expressed um, concern about 
these GPT systems already, if you have, you know, GPT-10, then maybe this would be very dangerous. And I actually wouldn't have guessed this, or I guess, or I guess I wouldn't have guessed other people had this intuition just because I sort of didn't have it. Because my, I guess my baseline intuition is just, you know, basically to rough approximation, the way the system works is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a model with, you know, some parameters, and then it's exposed to like a corpus of text. Um, and it just basically, you know, outputs, you know, a next word. And then, you know, the next word is like, you know, actually right or it's not, or basically there's a gradient descent that pushes the word outputs to be like less and less surprising relative to whatever the actual, you know, you know, words in the data set are. It's just basically kind of being optimized for like outputting words, which would be unsurprising um, to find as a next word in, in a you know piece of text, which is online somewhere. And when I think of like GPT-10, I think, wow, I guess it just outputs words, which would be very unsurprising to find on web pages online. It's just like the thing that it does. Like, and you know, if it, if insofar as it, let's say, does stuff like outputs words which lead people to destroy the world or something, it seems like it would only do that if those would be words that would be the most unsurprising to find online. Like if the words that lead it to destroy the world are not, you know, would be surprising to find online because people don't normally write that sort of thing online, then it seems like something weird has happened with the gradient descent process. So, so the, I, I think that that's a really great way to frame it. I, I think, I believe the counter argument to that might sound something like, um, you know, we might look at human beings as like 200,000 years ago as, mm -hmm. um, as uh, uh, sex optimizers yeah. or something like that. And then, you know, we find that we're not that as, as our evolution has unfolded. Mm -hmm. um, I think the case here is that like, well, first off, there's a deep question as to what it is that uh, a neural network actually is optimizing. Mm -hmm. so it's not actually clear that it's optimizing its loss function or that like, does it feel, it, it doesn't, like it feels a kick every time its gradients get updated. It goes like, oh, you're wrong. Like update mm -hmm. all your weights by this. Does that kick hurt? And like, if it does, then is that the kind of the true thing that's being optimized by these systems? And then if that's the case, then th there's this whole area, obviously in alignment that, yeah. that we're kind of skirting around here, but yeah. uh, it's a deep rabbit hole, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I certainly agree that there's a distinction between the loss function that's used when training a system and what the system acts like it's trying to do. And just one really simple, you know, way of saying that is um, if you, you know, start with like a, a chess playing reinforcement learning system and you have a you know, reward function and loss function associated with it and you just haven't trained it yet, it's just not going to act like it's trying to win at chess because it's, mm. you know, that's like one of the bluntest examples of like, it just doesn't act. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, you have these like transfer winning cases where, you know, you, um, you know, you train a, um, a system in let's say a video game where um, um, it gets points every time it opens a green box that's on the left and on the right, there's like a red box and you put it in an environment where there's a red box on the left and, you know, um, green box on the right. And the training data you've given it so far isn't actually sufficient to distinguish in a sense, like what is actually a thing that's being rewarded? Is it for opening red boxes or is it for opening, you know, the box and left? And, you know, I, you shouldn't be surprised if the system, for example, opens the box and left, even though actually the thing that, you know, is in the loss function is the red box um, or, you know, vice versa. Like it wouldn't be surprising if it's if it sort of is generalized in the wrong way. So I certainly agree that there's can be these generalization errors. Um, I struggle to see that why you would end up with, um, like in the case of something like GPT-3, I just sort of don't understand mechanistically, like what would be happening? Where would be, you know, so let's say that the concern is it because it's, you know, text generation system that puts out some text where if it's read by someone, you know, um, the, you know, the, it's an engineering blueprint for something that kills everyone, let's say, which I don't know if there's like a non-sci-fi version of this where it leads to existential risk, but let's say that's, you know, the thing it does. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I sometimes feel like I'm almost being, you know, dense or something or missing something, but I just don't understand like mechanistically, why would this gradient descent process lead it to have a policy that does that? Like, why would it in any way be optimized in that direction? Um, uh, I, the, the answer I would give not having yeah. put, I'm sure not having put sufficient yeah. thought into this, I should, I should preface, mm -hmm. but is in principle. Um, so if we imagine, like, let's say unlimited amount of compute, unlimited mm -hmm. scale data and so on, this model would, let's say just, it starts to think and it thinks more and more and more and develops like a larger and larger and more complete mm -hmm. picture of the world. Um, again, depending on what it's trying to optimize, assuming it's trying to optimize for like minimizing its gradients. Mm -hmm. Like here, this is very coarse. I, I assume I'm mm -hmm. wrong somehow, but somehow it feels like right to imagine that a neural network feels bad every time yeah. it's get kicked around. I don't know. Although I don't think though, yeah, I mean, I don't think there actually is any sense in which it feels bad. I think it's just it has certain parameters and then it outputs something and it's sort of compared to, you know, the, the, the training set. And then based on the discrepancy, its parameters are then kicked in a different direction. Like, I don't think that there's actually any sort of internal, like, like, I don't think there's actually like a meaningful sense in which it feels bad. It's just sort of like, you know, it's kind of, it has parameters and get nudged around by like a stick. Like it's, you know, this, this guy with the stick pushing the parameters in different directions on the basis of like the discrepancy or lack of discrepancy. And then they eventually end up somewhere. Yeah. And, and I think that that's actually, so this in and of itself is like, I think one of the coolest aspects, I'm, a, I'm about to get distracted by the yeah. inner alignment excitement here, but yeah, yeah. It, it's one of the coolest aspects to me of the inner alignment debate, because it's, it really gets you to the point of, of wondering about subjective experience and consciousness, mm -hmm. because there, there's there's no way to have the conversation without saying like this is some kind of process some kind of learning process and mm -hmm. learning process tends to produce an artifact like in humans it's a brain mm -hmm. that i mean it seems to have some kind of subjective experience basically all life you can look mm -hmm. at an amoeba move around under a microscope it really seems like it experiences pain and joy in different moments in different ways um and and so anyway seeing these systems that behave in ways that that could be interpreted mm -hmm. similarly um inspires at least in me questions about, you know, wh what is the link between the, the actual MISA objective, the, the function that the, that the mm -hmm. um, optimizer is really trying to improve and mm -hmm. like subjective experience. I think I, I'm kind of going into territory I don't understand nearly well enough, but um, maybe, maybe I can leave the thought at, I think this is a, a really exciting and interesting aspect of the problem as well. Do, do you think that, that there's like a, consciousness and subjective experience have a role to play the, the study of that in the context of these machines or are you i i think actually so i think not so not so much there's a, a difficulty here where there's obviously the different notions of consciousness people use so i guess i predominantly um think of it in the um i guess the uh david chalmersy sense of conscious experience as this at least hypothesized you know phenomenological thing that's sort of um you know, not in, intrinsically a part of the, it's not like a, a physical process. So it's not a description of how something processes information. It's, you know, an experience that's layered on top of, you know, the mechanical stuff that happens in the brain. Um, where if you're, you know, illusionist, you think that this, there is no such thing as this. And this is like a woo woo, you know, thing. Um, but I guess, you know, for that notion of consciousness, it doesn't seem in a sense like very directly relevant because it doesn't actually, you know, the weird aspects of it is it it's, it's by, kind of definition or a hypothesis, not something that actually physically influences um, anything that sort of happens in world behaviorally. And that, you know, you could have zombies where they behave just the same way, but they don't have this additional layer of consciousness on the top. So this, that version of consciousness, I think, um, I don't see as, as being very relevant to um, 
understanding how machine learning training works or how issues around MESA optimization work. Maybe that there's um, um, mechanistic things that people you know, sometimes refer to using consciousness, which I think sometimes has to do with like um, uh, information systems somehow having representations of themselves is like, you know, um, maybe one sort of kind of trait that people pick out sometimes when they, they, they use the term consciousness. Um, it seems like maybe some of that stuff is relevant or like maybe like beliefs about what your own goals are, this sort of thing. Maybe this has some interesting relationship to, um, to optimization and, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, human self-consciousness and things like that. Um, so I can see a, a link there, but I guess, I guess this is all to say, it depends a bit on the, the notion of consciousness that, that one has in mind. Yeah. No, well, makes makes perfect sense, and it's it's interesting how much these things do overlap with so many different areas, from economics to to mm -hmm. theories of consciousness, theories of mind. Um, thanks so much for for sharing your insights, Ben. I really appreciate it. Uh, do you want to share? Do you have like a, a Twitter or a personal um, website that you'd like to share, just so people can check out your work? Because I think you're, um, you're working on fascinating stuff. Yeah, so I do have um, a personal website with very little on it, but there's like a few papers I reference. Um, that's uh, benmgarfinkel.com. And I have a Twitter account that I've never tweeted from. I forget nice. what my username is, but if you would like to find it and follow me, I may one day tweet from it. <laughs> that is a compelling pitch. So everyone um, look into the, the possibility of Ben tweeting sometime. You, yeah, you might you be missing could, out. You could be among the first people to ever see a tweet from me if you get on the ground floor right now. They're, they're getting in at seed. This is time to invest seed stage. Yes, event. absolutely. All right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Ben. I will link to uh, both those things. Uh, including the, the Twitter. Yeah, I um, look forward to the, the <laughs> guided Twitter followers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Everybody go and follow Ben, uh, check out his website and we will be posting, I'll, I'll be posting some links as well in the blog post that will accompany this podcast, just to some of the specific uh, papers and pieces of work that Ben's put together that we've referenced in this conversation, just because I think there's a lot more to dig into there. So uh, Ben, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. This was a super fun conversation.